0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast against disease brought to you by humanity against disease. I am one of your hosts today, Kavita,
1: and I am Cody Weston.
0: And with us today for a very special episode about racial injustice and systemic racism is Professor Randy Goldson, who is coming to us from Temple University.
1: And just to give a little bit of background, He is a doctor of philosophy in religion and society, focusing on Rastafari religion, Pan-Africanism, and African-American religious history. He also has a master's in religion from Yale and a bachelor's from Northern Caribbean University. He is now teaching at Temple. We're going to be focusing on some of the same topics that he covers in one of his courses, which is called Race and Poverty in the Americas. For those of you at home, we're hoping to understand a little bit better how we got to this place as a society where race relations are strained as they are and try to understand how we can effectively move forward and heal as a species. So, yes, Randy, thank you for... Being here.
2: Yes, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I wanted to start with just getting your take on what uh, led to your interest in philosophy and religious studies. This is certainly a topic that I don't know much about and certainly something we don't get a lot of background in, in like a public school education.
2: Sure. So I started off in religious studies, particularly um, biblical studies, because I grew up in the church In Jamaica, where I grew up, it's common for Bible to be a part of public discourse. So the Bible is in the public square, Hmm. and everything that we talk about, everything we do from economics to politics, People tend to refer to the Bible as a source book, a guide, something that they can draw on to make a decision, whether they are religious or not. And I was intrigued by that growing up in such a setting as to why people turn to the Bible, why people turn to Scripture to drive their politics, to drive their identity, to drive their decision-making. And so I went to Northern Caribbean University, and I studied religion there, and focused on the Bible. And I continued that into Yale University at Yale Divinity School, where I focused on New Testament and early Christianity, still trying to understand this whole idea of hermeneutics being applicable in the public sphere and the, the whole idea of religion and society. When I got to Yale, I had a very transformative experience because prior to my My view and my interpretation of the Bible, like so many other people growing up in, you know, the third world or in formerly colonized spaces, it was a Eurocentric model of interpretation and hermeneutics. And I started to reason with members of the Rastafari community. Incidentally, Rastafari is a religion indigenous to Jamaica. But while I knew about Rastas in Jamaica, I didn't really engage the community while I was living there. And so in the US, I started to talk to reason, as they were with Rastas. And I realized there's something deeply profound about their interpretation of scripture, their view of scripture in terms of locating African identity and blackness, race, at the center of the discourse. And that fascinated me, that intrigued me, because the Rastas have successfully shown that you can take what they call your liberty, which is your lifestyle, your religious lifestyle, your identity. And make a profound impact on systems of oppression and so I went to Temple University to continue to study that and it has been fascinating I completed my PhD only this year just a few days ago I finished and got my PhD in a moment where we're seeing incredible racial tensions come into a height and I was looking back and said, wow, this script is repeating itself in the sense that in, in the 1930s when Rastafari came on the scene, it was in the midst of Jamaica's colonial experience, mm-hmm. Britain being the colonial power that controlled Jamaica, and Rastafari saying, hey, we need to have agency, we need to have autonomy, we need the colonial powers to be gone out of our country, and we need to take charge, mm-hmm. and we need to be treated Equally as Africans, we need to, need to be treated equally as human beings. And so in this present moment in confronting racism, racial violence in the United States, I feel like religious studies, philosophy have a lot to say about the current uh, moment we're in.
1: I do want to ask one follow-up. For my own sake and for our listeners, you use the term hermeneutics, and I noticed from reading your paper you have a deep vocabulary of philosophical terms that is not one that I'm familiar with. Would you be willing to define it for us?
2: Sure. So in the general sense, hermeneutics refers to interpretation, how we interpret the art or the science of interpretation. And in the religious sense more so, it's how we interpret text. How do we read text? What perspectives we bring? What presuppositions we bring? And how those um, impact the outcome, the interpretation of what we've been reading?
1: I see. So something like whether you go into a reading of the Bible, for example, with the idea that it is the absolute infallible word of God or having a a different interpretation that it's been translated numerous times and may have some flexibility, something like that?
2: Exactly. Just like that.
1: Excellent. Just another follow up. As far as the Rastafarian faith, I'm sure that this could be easily several podcasts on its own, but for those of us who aren't well acquainted with it, what are the core beliefs?
2: I'll share just a few. So the Rastafari emerged in Jamaica, was formed in Jamaica in the 1930s. We don't know the exact date, but we know it has two important events. One, it's the enthronement of Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia in November um, 1930 uh, as King of Kings of Ethiopia, okay. um, which connected to Marcus Garvey as well, I suspect, and I think it is an apocryphal story that Marcus Garvey proclaimed uh, just before um, Selassie's um, coronation to look to the east from whence come a black king. Hmm. You know, it's a lot of controversy around that. But religion at its core believes that Emperor Haile Selassie is God in the flesh, mm. that when he was enthroned in 1930 of King of Kings, he became the fulfillment of a long history of prophetic declarations going back to Psalm 68, which says that Ethiopia, that princes shall come of Egypt, and Ethiopia shall stretch forth her hand unto God, which... It's very much rooted in an American tradition of Ethiopianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rasta believe in the divinity of Haile Selassie. Rasta believes that Africa, Ethiopia in particular, is the homeland. It is by to which all African peoples, wherever they are, should return. They believe in natural living or idle living, so they tend to be vegans. Mm-hmm. They tend to avoid technology, even though in this moment, uh, while I'm talking to you, I'm just glancing at my screen with a Zoom call with Rasta brethren and sisters in the U.S. and in South Africa. Though they have skeptical views about technology, they uses it. But it's about natural living, believing in Emperor Halas, Lassia, as, as God, as they would say. Mm-hmm. And also, use of marijuana as a holy sacrament is very important in the Rastafari faith
1: not to get too far off track, but I do think that's fascinating that the use of marijuana is about the only element that I feel makes it to, to mainstream culture for people who are not trying to be informed about it. And <laughs> of course, is there a connection between Rastafarianism and marijuana policy? I know there's sort of racial roots to, or at least there's a lot of theories that that's a major contributor to why it was criminalized in the first place. Do you have any comments on that?
2: Sure. So interestingly, I just completed a paper that I shared at a conference in November 2019 that I updated for publication in Journal of Ecumenical Studies, should be out in the late summer or fall, on the ganja struggles, like the history of contesting marijuana in Rastafari, in Jamaica, state contestation, Rastafari contestation. And the history of of marijuana use is, is a long and rich history. In the Jamaican context, marijuana came to the island in the 1840s when indentured servants from India came to Jamaica, put it more correctly. Indians were indentured in Jamaica, brought the plant with them. These are East Indians, um, shared with the population. But before Rasta took it up, it became kind of a... Common use in Jamaica from that 1840 period until 1930s when Rasta emerged, okay. and the association of marijuana with Rasta—it's it, it, really a political process because Rastafari use of marijuana in its early days was no different from. How the Afro Jamaican folks and the East Indian folks in Jamaica used it. But then there, in, the, in the 1940s, as a way to suppress Rastafari, the colonial government tied marijuana use to the Rastas and persecuted them along those lines. Rastas have no fear now in saying, hey, this is our holy herb. So over the history of Jamaica until 2015, When the government decided to amend the Dangerous Drug Act to allow for the emergence of the medical cannabis industry, Mm -hmm. you know, they kind of ease some of these restrictions and allow Rasta to have greater access without getting into trouble. Yet, you know, the industry is heavily dominated by white people from Canada and the United States because they have the money to dominate the industry. So the capitalists, have really taken over the industry. And the people like the Rastafarians who have been beaten and imprisoned for this whole term are not getting the benefits of the decriminalization and the emergence of this industry. It's and it's a point of great contention among Rasta activists and Ganja activists in Jamaica currently. So, yes, it's a, it's a tremendously political process surrounding marijuana use.
1: Yeah, it certainly seems like a disconnect that something that was so culturally significant and was sort of used to delegitimize that community in the eye of other cultures is now being co-opted by those very cultures.
0: That kind of points to this long-running thread of economics and power throughout history as a way to commit violence against minority groups. So I feel like as I'm learning more myself and educating myself, I feel like it really keeps coming back to economics and money and power. And so, Randy, I'd like to ask you, how did we get to our present-day moment of protests against police brutality, against these murders of many African-American men and women over many years, and, I mean, even lynchings of Black people today? What were the different trends and moments in american history that have led up to this day and led up to this mass protest
2: wow so that's a a big question and let's (laughs) see how we can we can unpack it in my classes we start with one major transformative event that's when christopher columbus got the courage or the wits to say hey Spain, sponsor me to sail around the world. I can find a better route to the east and ended up in the Americas in 1492. That was the beginning of trouble within this region. Of course, we have to acknowledge that how we got here is a part of what happened to native peoples in the Americas prior to African people coming as enslaved individuals. Colonization proper started with what would say Columbus's accidental discovery or accidental appearance in the Americas in 1492. It extends to native genocide. So many of the first people to be enslaved by Europeans in this region were the Kalinagos in Dominica, the Teanos in Jamaica, and the various Native American tribes, both in the continental mainland and central and south america and then the introduction the force of the taking of africans into this space being enslaved for many many years so what i'm trying to sketch here how we got here is built on a history of racial violence it's at the core of the colonial nation and at the core of this American experiment. So by the time Africans landed uh, in Virginia, as enslaved individuals in 1619, a system of brutalization and dehumanization was already at work and it continues to work. It continues to spin. Hmm.
1: That's something I didn't realize. I, I guess I I had some sense that, that racial violence was happening pretty quickly, but that there was direct enslavement of the people who were already here by Mm -hmm. Columbus and company before the slave trade even began?
2: Part of that is a historical forgetting because there are many native tribes, or I don't like the word tribes, but native peoples whose existence is no more. They were wiped out. Just read Bartholomew de las Casas' work on the history of the Indies, and you're shocked. And Bartholomew de las Casas was... um, A Catholic priest who had accompanied Columbus, and he became sort of an activist for native peoples, writing, documenting the story of what was happening to them, reporting to the European powers to say, hey, we cannot continue to enslave these individuals. They're not suited for this type of work, and they're dying at alarming rates. And hey, look at what the Spanish are doing to them. They're using them for games, for sports, beheading, raping, introducing smallpox into the population, decimating this population. And so we have forgotten that history. And even where we have native peoples here in the United States, they're encamped in uh, reservations, which is just crazy Mm. that there's not more integration, more access, more opportunities So that, too, is part of what we as a society have to reckon with.
0: I remember in history class in high school learning that over 90 percent of Native Americans, indigenous people in the Americas were killed by violence and by disease. And it's wild to think that 90 percent of a population of people could be erased like that.
2: It, it, is, it is staggering when you think about it, that much violence been done, unimaginable, but it's absolutely, absolutely true.
1: Yeah, the incredible loss of culture, the incredible loss of ideas, the incredible loss of life, It it's right. sobering.
2: And, and, and I mean, and it's even more staggering when you think in the U.S. context that that's over time and like continually, there have been legislations that really limited the mobility, limited the access of the native and indigenous peoples. We're talking things like the Indian Removal Act in 1838. The, the whole, um, you know, what historians refer to as the, the Trail of Tears, mm-hmm. as Indians were driven from their home places, the land that they had access to, all these reservations that emerged. It's <laughs> it is incredibly uh, a violent process.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, I I really can't imagine. I while we were talking, I just calculated roughly how much of the U.S. population has died from coronavirus, and it's less than one percent. So to think of disease and violence being so widespread to kill ninety percent of you know the U.S. population, I, I can't even imagine.
1: Yeah. And to tie it back to coronavirus, I don't want to speak too much out of or without having sources on hand. But I know that the coronavirus impact on the Native American uh, populations has been disproportionately brutal and uh, accessing PPE and getting the kinds of support that uh, communities need in this time has not been commensurate with with what they uh, would need to, to adequately address the problem.
2: Right, but of course it, it speaks to the, the kind of ways in which minority communities, disenfranchised communities have been consistently impacted in every way by any kind of um, natural disaster or a, a pandemic or whatever it is, because the resources in these communities are not there. Yeah. And the access is just not there. So because of that, They are always, always going to be on the the negative receiving end of any sort of um, tremendous shifts with devastating consequence.
1: Randy, what do your students in your course find the most surprising pieces about the history of Black America and the African diaspora?
2: One of the things that shocked me, let me say what shocks me first, before what shocks them is how little they know about American history or at least a version of American history that's a more complete representation of the significant historic moments in this country. One of the things, in early in the course, I'll talk about this, it was mentioned here just now, economics and slavery. And many people find it hard to kind of connect these two, how capitalism emerged out of the experience of enslavement in the Americas, and then became the engine that drove the whole process. So there's this book written by Edward Baptist called The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. I have them read parts of that, along with Eric Williams' tremendous, groundbreaking book, Capitalism and Slavery. So Baptist gives a North American, the American experience, the U.S. experience, and Williams focuses on the Caribbean experience, the West Indian experience. Okay. And I asked them to think about two things here cotton in the United States and sugar cane, sugar production in the Caribbean. And think about the fact that how the cotton boom actually happened, how the South would be able to produce so much cotton, and who was doing the work. Because people think about all this money that was being made, forgetting. The hands of slaves were picking cotton. That driving this production was the demonization of individuals, of African bodies, of black bodies. Most of them struggle with making these historic connections and always ask them, all right, let's break it down. Let's look at cotton production here. Let's look at how the North developed as a powerful economic engine that the South was feeding this money into the North because that shocks them a lot. Many of them have been taught to think of slavery as a North versus South issue because, of course, that's how you know, the Civil War story history is told, not realizing that there was this kind of constant connection in terms of economic flow. So, you know, folks in the South will use this enslaved Africans as collateral to get mortgages or to get loans from banks in Philadelphia to do the expansion in the South. So there was a price on black bodies, an economic price. So when we talk about racism and we talk about slavery, we have to trace the economic components to this. Ultimately, what racism is, is the concentration of power into the hands of a collective based on race what black folks have lacked in this country over the history of this country is this kind of power which is both economic which is political in opposition to white society that has had this access this money this capital this power that means they're able to perpetuate the power and the domination over african folks. so they struggle with that and it shocks them a lot to think about it in terms of money that's how black bodies were seen. It was in the history of the US during enslavement a price. And we've seen it manifested in this what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow the prison industrial complex that each body in a prison, and of course we're talking about prison population being made up disproportionately of black and brown bodies. Mm-hmm are tagged, (laughs) their prices. Prisoners work, you remember the huge scandal when a a storm was about to hit not so long ago and you had prisoners packing sandbags for something like 60 cents. I don't remember, it was almost less than a dollar. That was their labor per hour. That's crazy. That's a type of enslavement in this country that has a monetary value that Benefits those in power. Mm-hmm. Those things I think are completely taken aback when here talk about.
1: I'm reminded of the fact that even in the present, we're very much reliant on the exploitation of other populations to have the lifestyle we have. A while back, there were those articles about how an iPhone would cost a completely untenable price if it were built by people who were paid a wage that would be recognizable as reasonable in the United States. This kind of violence continues, and we continue to be willfully ignorant of it. It just seems to be largely outsourced to other countries where I guess it's easier to turn a blind eye.
2: Right. I mean, definitely in Africa and in... Parts of Asia with sweatshops uh, and in parts of Latin America, that's at a distance. But right here in the United States, prison labor is used, is exploited a lot. Hmm. And that has a racial consequence because it's mostly brown and black folks. And when we talk about how they ended up in prison, in many cases, it's tied back to the economics of who can afford a lawyer, a good lawyer.
1: Yeah,
2: Who can afford to make the bond, the bail bond, like, to pay. Like, so so these, these things have a significant consequence that so many people, because of the, the, the lack of access to, to economic power and to, to money, um, end up being thrown into the system and eventually become part of the, the raw material for turning out profit in the interest of those with power.
1: Yeah, the philosophical concept of standing reserve, kind of the last thing you'd want to consider human beings. That's really sad. And I can speak as a a psychiatrist to how frequently I see patterns of inequality in criminal records. When patients come into the emergency department, it is, sometimes we'll look at their Maryland judiciary case search and see, for example, if they have open warrants because this kind of thing can affect how we can help them in the moment. And it is incredible. You could almost guess the ethnicity of any given patient from how frequently they have nonviolent offenses for trespassing, loitering, like marijuana possession. And one imagines that there are numerous factors at play here. But if certain populations are being arrested at an inordinate rate, that's going to stack the deck even before the factors you mentioned come into play.
2: Yeah, and let's be clear about when we're talking about people being arrested, it's not just like it's a random thing, like this guy happens to just be a bad guy, Mm -hmm. and so the police will spot him a mile away. Communities of color, black communities, are over-policed and at the same time under police. Over-policed in the sense that they're constantly under surveillance by the police. Police presence is heavy, and it's a negative type of police presence. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's on the police in the sense that when folks need the police to be present, when folks need the help of the police, it's slow. It's not forthcoming. And you find this a lot in large cities on the East Coast, looking um, parts of Philadelphia, and just watch the police presence. And then compare that, the Clinton police presence, with when something significant happens in the community, like a murder, yeah. and how the police is responding, or if someone calls the police because they're being burglarized, that kind of lapse response. So that's there to acknowledge that Imani Perry, in her book, More Beautiful and More Terrible, talks about this kind of, their eyes were watching me, meaning there's constant surveillance of black bodies, black folks, in this country. And again, this is rooted in the experience of slavery from the time that people are plantationed. They had to be watched so that they don't run away. You don't want them to become maroons. You don't want them to be deviant. In fact, uh, and you know more about this than me, Cody, that there was a term that was coined that's called droputopia. So this was coined by one of the early American psychiatrists to explain the constant need of an enslaved person to run away. Oh, and so oh, that's we, we can talk about this in the medical literature, but the point is because of fear of losing your economic value that you have put into enslavement, you have to watch. Mm-hmm. And watching continued with slave catchers, The watching continued during the post-emancipation period, after 1865, you have to watch them because you have to ensure that these Negroes don't become a threat to white society by obviously what they love to say is to target white women. So white women were used as a prop in maintaining the racial order. Not that white men necessarily cared about white women any different from anything else, but It was like, okay, here is what we need to protect our community from, so you watch them. And so the watching continues today with the police. So people are are skeptical about this kind of atmospheric policing with drones and with surveillance aircraft in Baltimore. And Black folks have to be skeptical because we have been watched for a very long time. And so it is out of this watching, this surveillance, this voyeurism, if you please, by Black men in particular have been disproportionately arrested by the police for non-violent offenses.
1: Yeah, and from a developmental perspective, it is really worrying. It seems that the people are targeted at such an early age. I feel like there's a certain amount of stupid decisions that anybody in any community is going to make in their mid to late teenage years. And if you add economic desperation on top of that, it's going to even raise that rate. And if you then derail people from their life course as a result of that, particularly for nonviolent things, the damage that's done is far greater than what would be gained by keeping a quote-unquote dangerous person off the streets. And I think this ties really well into the discussion we had with my uh, Tai Chi instructor, Sifu Dan Jones, about the relationship between policing and communities. It does seem that police are going to have to have a different sort of presence in communities of color and to some Mm -hmm. extent all communities if we're going to move forward in a productive way.
2: Absolutely. And that's part of the the cries um, that we're hearing and many people are not understanding about defunding the police. Mm -hmm. I was reminded just earlier today that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that a budget is a moral document. And when you look at how resources are allocated in our communities, Dr. Kerry Maxwell says the largest part of the U.S. budget is on defense, but this defense is really violence. Yeah. And so when you look at local police department allocation, and so much goes into policing, yet the outcome is not necessarily positive for a large part of the community That spend taxes to the police, to to fund the police. So defunding, really, one, it's reallocating resources, but also restructuring police departments and those that can't be restructured to be dismantled. So it's money, it's policy, it's approach, and it's really starting from the ground up to have not the kind of watching slave-catching mentality that has structured the police for such a long time, but one about trust, one about service, one about, you know, respect for all members of the community.
1: Yeah. I think there is a really productive conversation to be had here. I think there's a lot of strong reactions when you use a phrase, like you said, that people are reacting to the idea of defunding the police. Like, what, do you mean you don't want to have police anymore? No, no reasonable person is saying that. It does sound like they're... Are some useful things. Police are stretched very, very thin in that they're expected to cover all these different kinds of cases, whereas you want police to show up to an armed robbery or a hostage situation. It might be better to have a social worker show up or have a psychiatrist show up if somebody is clearly insane. This isn't a situation where you need somebody going in who's trained to subdue a dangerous person necessarily. (laughs) rather than someone who's trained to de-escalate and understand the phenomenology of, of a psychotic individual and their behavior. Right. We need to borrow a page out of Frank Luntz's playbook and choose the words we're using very carefully, maybe clarifying the role of police, which I feel like is more what we're trying to do.
2: Well, you know, yeah, words definitely matter. The folks who started to defund the police and defund the police slogan they do understand that the only way to grab the attention— I mean, if I am saying, oh, let's reallocate funds to the police, let's restructure the police, it, it won't grab the attention, like, defund the police. You have a point. So when you say it that way, then we can generate the conversation as to what that looks like, even though one might be turned off by, that's just a ludicrous idea. Well, let's talk about it. Hmm.
1: Fair point. That's a valid approach as well. I guess it, it is a— An open question, whether it's better to grab attention, because you're right. I mean, one of the other things that's been pointed out is that there is a certain necessity to be provocative. Already, we're seeing that there's less attention being paid to the current protests because the looting and rioting was a very limited piece of the very, very first um, stages of this. And now there's hundreds of protests going on. Everyone is acting by and large, in an exemplary fashion, and then the media is not interested anymore? I mean, that doesn't send a very good message.
2: There we go. (laughs) So that's part of normalization. So when things are part of the status quo, when you just work with a playbook, when there's not a radical edge to it, I mean, it becomes normalized and it will be overlooked because you can see it in CNN. We're we're back to talking about COVID because the protests aren't that interested anymore.
1: Yeah. I think that that point is well taken. I, I don't want to jump around too much because I know we're going to talk about the present and future in a bit, but I do want to come back around to that. Some of these ideas, like everyone was complaining about Kaepernick and then everyone was complaining when people were doing something more drastic it's like you can't have it both ways. Either you pay attention when right. people are protesting in a civilized fashion or you wait until they can't handle it anymore. It's the same as um, at a much smaller scale in psychotherapy and things. You know, If you've got a bad relationship between two people, they can either try and talk it out or diffuse it or wait until someone snaps and says something they regret. But you know, no one's perfect and no one has an infinite patience for things that are not tolerable.
0: I'm jumping back way, like five steps back, because I think this word is still like stuck in my head. And I'm like, making various connections to classes that I took in college on culture anthropology and the Middle East and the word surveillance, thinking about how Black Americans live in essentially a surveillance state. And that's something that I feel like in college, I, it was used to describe like Syria under Assad or Iran under the... The I am now making this connection, which the fact that Black Americans live in this very compartmentalized world within America, even now we still have so much segregation, even within culture. And mm-hmm. the fact that their identity is always going to be Black, something that they can never sort of step outside of or, you know, expand. And the idea of thinking how if a Black man or woman was to walk down the street They would be under that surveillance from people who are complicit within the society that they live in, like the woman who called the police for that man who told her to wear a mask in Central Park or various things like that, where people consider African Americans loitering or up to something suspicious if they're just, you know, potentially just out and living their lives. That is exceptionally terrifying to me. And I think I'm now understanding how the police are kind of an arm of this almost- dictatorship that African-Americans are living under in America. I think none of us, myself included, and I don't think I understand what it would be like to be constantly surveilled and the I mean, mental stresses that that would cause.
2: Absolutely. And here's the thing. So we talked about the police in this moment with the protests and the lynchings and these horrible killings of black folks in, in this country at the, the hands and the, the knees. of of police, and kind of the surveillance. But here's another form which maybe we can call it the everyday form of surveillance. So, you know, and this has happened to me so many times as a black man. I go to the mall, and once I walk into a high-end store, there is always someone coming, and they'll they'll come very politely. The attendant in the store asks, how are you doing? Can I help you? Which... Courteous, and you know, for the first couple of seconds, it's wonderful, all right, great, it's nice customer service. But then you realize that you're being followed every time you walk around to look at something, someone is following you, someone is over your shoulders watching. You know, you're under the suspicion of, hey, this guy's about to steal something. It's how. This is practice in everyday form that, that's so insidious, that's so in, um so so maddening. You're constantly checking yourself to have your composure and to say, hey, whatever, let me leave the store. So so that happens. It happens in your neighborhood. And that's why, I personally, I was so terrified when I was told, you know, we were told in the initial stages, well, if you can't get N95 masks and you shouldn't get them, Or you can't get the the regular surgical mask or face mask. Just use a bandana, use a a handkerchief and tie it around your... It's like, hey. Immediately I'm thinking back, well, we have been stylized and stigmatized as kind of bandit-looking when we do that. So how is it for me as a black man, I'm going to just tie something around my face and walk around the neighborhood Am I not in danger of doing that? And so that that's part of some of the, the negotiations we have to do when we're in a surveilled state. We have to watch how we approach. We have to watch how we say stuff. We have to watch where we go because we're constantly subject to surveillance and accompanying that surveillance is violence. Mm-hmm. It could be violence in arrest or violence in being shot um, and killed by people who feel like they have the right to do that, that's just part of the, the daily struggles of living as a as a person of color, as a black person um, in this country.
1: That's something that I, I've thought about. I mean, I, I see on doors all around this, uh, I, I live on the, the east side of, of Baltimore by the Bayview campus, and... There's signs on all kinds of businesses that say, like, don't come in here with a hoodie or a mask. And I had to go in once and say, like, is this mask okay? Because technically we're supposed to be wearing masks for COVID now. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I mean, I can see that there's just this inherent right. um, struggle between doing what is safe in one sense and doing what is safe in, a, in another sense based on the assumptions that are made about you based on your outward appearance. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. you're an academic if people if people saw you across the road and only saw academic instead of black person, they would have a completely different set of stereotypes.
0: It's really scary to think that anyone around you could be an informer to the surveillance state. I cannot imagine that burden of and, and the fear associated with that that anybody could at any time rat you out for a reason that isn't real.
2: Correct correct. And of course, we've had the history of this happening. I mean, the Central Park Five, for example, in the, in the history of this country, it has been so easy to identify as like almost a default mode. Yeah, I saw a black guy. Well, could you give a little bit more? Wrongfully accused um, black men for, for crimes that they've, they've not committed because it's just such a default thing to do. It's really living under the constant fear of people are watching. I can feel the eyes watching. Will they call the police? And that and that and that is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that sounds awful. Because, I mean, I, I walk everywhere, and I do things that could be considered suspicious all the time. Like if I'm going to and from places, walking through Baltimore at like 4 o'clock in the morning because I have a shift starting, it's something that I take for granted that I'm not really likely to set off anybody's alarm bells as a white person. I can't imagine knowing that I could be stopped for no good reason just because people think I'm up to no good if I had a different colored skin.
2: Exactly. And and, and that's part of, you know, when we, we have the conversation about white privilege that many people don't understand. They're like, I have no privilege. Well, you know, it's not just in terms of you having a very nice house or uh, money in your bank account. It's your ability to get by unmolested because of your skin color, your ability to live without the fear of threat to your being and to your existence because the state is not programmed to target you in the way that people of color are targeted. And that's part of the conversation that many people miss when we, we, we talk about white privilege.
1: It strikes me. This is where I've always felt really philosophically uncomfortable with the amount of discretion involved in law enforcement. For example, to take the easiest example of speeding, it drives me bananas that people will commute at 15 miles over the speed limit in certain areas, and no one does anything. But theoretically, the police could choose to stop any of those people at any time. I think it's inherent upon areas where that happens to change the speed limit or start enforcing it, because it if there's no rhyme or reason, then you can have officers acting in bad faith, targeting people for the wrong reasons, or even acting on unconscious biases.
0: So, Dr. Goldson, what are some of the most commonly held myths that you might encounter in your students, colleagues, and the people around you, or even in popular media right. about Equality, equity, um, race relations, racism, racial violence.
2: So here, here's a good place to start. When we have the conversation, so let, let, let's pick up with one that's very, very popular right now that's picking up in the media. It's representation of African-American Black people in in the media. We're talking about stereotypical representation, which go way, 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 way back in American history. So now uh, I think PepsiCo has decided who took over the Aunt Jemima brand of pancakes, decided to remove her image from the the box of of the pancake. And and many people are, are saying, oh, it's just an image. Like, why are you going after Aunt Jemima? Why are you going after Uncle Ben? Not realizing that that image It's deeply rooted in Southern racist ideas about black folks and black women in particular And we call it the mammy image, Mm. where if you look at the history and the evolution of the image of Aunt Jemima, you'll realize that the first box that came out, she was pretty much in a a head tie, and she looked like a newly emancipated enslaved woman that worked in the plantation kitchen. And then, you know, over time, you made her a little lighter, then you made her a little bit more palatable to folks who want to see a professional black woman, but idea of the mommy image never changed, which refers to this idea that African American women lived to serve at the pleasure of white families, taking care of their children, taking care of their, their cooking needs, taking care of the house, that kind of thing. And a good film to watch is it's called The Help. I think it's a a wonderful, you know, if you you just want to get an idea as to what's so deeply problematic about these representations, that that film is a a good one to watch to help. And so that's one of the assumptions. It's also, when we talk about racism, people still believe that people are overreacting. And you've seen how hard it is for so many of our leaders to acknowledge the existence of systemic racism in the police force, in the society, because it's something that they can't, it's as though if you don't see someone hanging from a tree lynched, then this thing doesn't exist. So when black folks talk about feeling racially oppressed, it's easily dismissed in white spaces. Um, Elijah Anderson coined that term of white spaces, places that black people perceive that their presence is not. So, you know, um, I mean, in PWIs, predominantly white institutions, schools, you find this a lot, that because you're present and because there's diversity, however that is defined, people feel like racism doesn't exist. Mm. A great myth that has held, and it's still holding sway, I mean, it's been challenged more and more now with the rise of Black Lives Matter, is after President Obama was elected, we had a new discourse, centered around post-racial society. Mm-hmm. So now that we had a black president, it means that we have moved beyond race into this post-racial dispensation. But the problem with anything post is that it presupposes that the thing that you're trying to move beyond really exists, post-modernism, post-whatever. So people still see we're post-racial; we don't see race. Uh, with the human beings and problematic just like the all that matter discourse problematic but other common held myths and assumptions here we're talking about people tend to justify violence being done to black people by keeping in place the stigma of criminalization so we're pretty much viewed through the lens of criminality so of course if the police apprehended a black male. Of course, if the police shot and killed a black male, it's because he deserved it. He's criminal. That's the default interpretation, even before you, you know the person. Now, we've seen this over and over with black folks being killed, and almost immediately in the media, you know, both liberal and conservative, talking about the person's criminal record, talking about the time this person was five and got into a fight. As though yeah. so those things matter in the moment. So so that lens is there. In the same way that people who are Muslim or from Middle Eastern countries are viewed through a lens of terrorism. And here we're talking about what the monetary calls racial narratives. These discourse and racial schemata, things that structure how we are looking at people and how we are talking about them and how the talk itself this discourse reifies stereotypes so those are some of the commonly held ones oh there are many 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 others black women being loud if they speak up and speak out about oppression being aggressive they assert themselves rightly so for what they deserve people see me going to ivy league it's the assumption that hey i didn't really earn my place somebody lowered my SAT score, my score was low, but they overlooked it to get me here and I'm only here because of uh, they try to fill a diversity, race, diversity, culture or something like that. So assumptions. Yeah. And there there's some of those coming here as
1: well. Yeah, there's a lot of microaggression inherent in those assumptions.
2: It Absolutely. is. Absolutely.
1: I mean these were discussions that happened When I was growing up, a lot of white people were frustrated about this idea of affirmative action because I think there's a lot of chicken and egg involved in this where change has to start somewhere. You can argue about the best way to make a difference, but if you have people who have been at a disadvantage, sooner or later, some measure is going to have to happen where they are given an opportunity to catch up, so to speak. There's no way for us to live in a just society with all this past injustice without some sort of action that doesn't directly and immediately benefit white people. This leads into this idea of redlining, which I have become a TED Talk level expert. I watched one video on it and uh, on YouTube and was blown away. They used Baltimore as an example. And as somebody who lives in Baltimore and sees the stark contrast between historically black neighborhoods and historically white neighborhoods, it is incredible it is like two different countries and to find out that there was legislation making that not only de facto but de jure for so long is horrifying would you like to speak to your understanding of that phenomenon
2: so so let's broaden it just a bit a little bit to talk about residential segregation more generally, okay. redlining being one of the modes of achieving this residential segregation. America prides itself of being that the passage of the Civil Rights Bill, Fair Housing Act in 1968, and all these wonderful legislation that we have we've officially desegregated. And so the idea of desegregation is we don't have the Jim Crow laws, So black and white folks are, you know, integrated and using the same resources and have the access and all this wonderful stuff. But today, America is even more deeply segregated than the 1960s and earlier in that people don't live together. Hmm. Black folks and white folks are not living together, and there are economic factors underlining this. But then there are also very racist policies that enabled this to kind of happen historically. And that gets to the whole idea of redlining itself during the period of the the, the Great Migration. And we're talking about the 1930s and the 1940s. African-Americans started to little by little migrate from the South to northern cities. Maybe we should change that word, migrate, because many of them were literally fleeing racial violence, fleeing for their lives. So they were almost like refugees, if Mm. you really want to get very provocative here, Um, fleeing to places like Chicago and into places like Harlem um, in New York just to escape racial, racist violence. That's what was happening when we talk about uh, this, this kind of great migration out of the South of African Americans. Not just only seeing the violence in terms of death, but in terms of the loss of their, their wealth or the loss of their land or the loss of their property. That was happening at an alarming rate. Hmm. When you look from 1930 to the present, at the, the loss of land unfairly, African American loss of land, unfairly, and we're talking about places that have become very prominent beach properties today, in, in South Carolina, for example. These are owned by African American black people, but because of very deceptive practices, whether it, sh- it was sharecropping, for example, or just being violently driven out, they have lost properties, they have lost wealth. And so for many just so that their kids could have a life and a future, they moved into northern cities. But of course, accompanying black presence is always the feeling of threat and the associated phenomena called white flight. Mm-hmm. So once black people started to go into these neighborhoods, lenders would start to zone, categorize the neighborhoods based on the presence of black people. And so in a black neighborhood, and here we're describing redlining now, if a neighborhood was too black, you'd say, well, it's in the red zone. We won't necessarily give mortgages um, to folks wanting to live in the, those areas. Or people would say the prices have to be incredibly higher so as to discourage people from, from living in these areas. So that created... The kind of residential segregation that continues even into this present moment Mm -hmm. of literally, literally identifying areas that we don't want black people in these areas, or if black people are in these areas, we won't give mortgages to these areas. Federal legislation, as I mentioned, the Fair Housing Act in 1968 was meant to address this problem of residential segregation and redlining, saying this practice is outlawed, It, it cannot be done. But there is still evidence that the practice continues today. I mean, it might not be explicit, as in back in the 1930s, the 1940s, 1968. But it's still happening. People, minorities, people of color have a tougher time getting approved for mortgages to own houses. And here's the problem. The greatest source of wealth for an average American is in home ownership. Mm-hmm. Right. And to think about it, how many blacks have been barred from having this type of access, this ability to build wealth, it's staggering. And so it preserves the white power structure. And so that's a part and parcel of of this residential segregation that's going on. Another component that's tied to the redlining is predatory lending, mm-hmm. right? And this is part of the racial disparities in housing where by the loans very high risk loans for prime mortgages, um, little accountability little oversight were given to people of color minorities, the black people and so when the the, the recession of two thousand and eight hit, what happened? Many black folks lost their homes again disproportionate impact all right so that that too has contributed to a type of residential segregation residential segregation is linked directly to to education. Here's why. Because we have what? Neighborhood schools. And so if you live in a well to do area, a middle class, up and coming area with that's resource, your school district tends to have the resources to really care for kids. I've known black folks who have moved out of the city of Philadelphia, for example, into some of these suburbs just because they want to give their kids a shot at getting into a good school. Hmm. Or, or black families with kids with disabilities try to go into a school district, usually a white co- community where the school district is located, because there's special ed programs. for for their kids that are not in the predominant black areas in the city. So that is happening, residential segregation. That's why many white folks could get by without even talking about race, because they're in spaces that reflect their values, that reflect their race, that reflect their ethos, so they can't have open, frank, and... Tough conversation about race, even though America is a multiracial society. We're in these silos, these pockets, blacks over here, black communities, white communities over here. So that's part of the the residential segregation that's happening. And of course historically it's tied to redlining, it's tied to the more recent predatory lending and, and subprime mortgage issue of subprime mortgages. That that's part of it. We're not really living together though we're in the same country where we're incredibly segregated.
0: I think that kind of segues directly into our next question, which is, can you describe the school-to-prison pipeline concept?
2: Sure. So when we talk about school-to-prison pipeline, at the most basic level, we're talking about the school's failure to educate, failure to treat fairly Black and brown children. So what we're finding in have. Presented the data on this that African American black kids are more likely to be suspended from school for a protracted period of time, you know, because of acting up in class or for not following what the teacher says or for doing silly things that other kids of other races would do, but they're more likely to be suspended. Again, that that's because they're viewed through the lens of being a criminal. And so connected with this kind of disproportionate expulsion or suspension, you find that the educational outcome for these children is is poorer, it's lower compared to their peers who were never hardly suspended or kicked out of school. And so what that's linked to in large part is, you know, the turn to unhelpful activities post high school or while in high school that puts them at higher risk of being targeted, being arrested, being thrown into prison by the police. So that's how that works. And educators have studied this, this, this stuff, you know, in more detail than I have really point to the fact that in lots of these school districts, and um, I'll join my experience because I did work for a school district for for two years at the Board of Education, and it's a school district with mostly black and Latino um, children. And what you found that among the teaching staff, and particularly the teaching staff in leadership, you didn't have that demographic reflected. Hmm. And so these educators have looked at this stuff, say, hey, you know, part of the problem is that our teachers don't know how to teach or how to build relationships with black children. And so everything the child does, you, they, they see it as kind of a violent act that warrants some discipline, that warrants removal from, from the, the educational space. And so many are asking for the teaching population to reflect the, the student population more in order to stem this school-to-prison pipeline.
1: That seems to mirror one of the problems we have in healthcare as well, which is that due to a certain kind of cultural simpatico and better understanding of background, it is advantageous to have the demographics of providers match the the demographics of the people who are uh, receiving care.
0: I think one of the things that has become a consequence of the school-to-prison pipeline and the lack of representation we see in healthcare is that there's been a lot of violence committed against people from disadvantaged backgrounds that builds an inherent mistrust. And I wonder if Black kids and parents can feel like they can trust that their teachers are trying to do things in their best interest and I have definitely seen how Black patients and patients' family members can have a mistrust of, are all of these doctors who look nothing like us and have no knowledge of our lived experience, are they going to take the best care of me or my loved one? It definitely, I think, is going to be a huge challenge to figure out how to build that representation because I think that's the only way that even um, people who are disadvantaged, whether that is race, class, or anything else, how that trust can be built, because otherwise the people who might need to benefit the most from good health care, from good schooling, will have lost their faith in, in these social services.
2: Right. You know, just going back to some of this defunding the police discourse, You know, people are asking for reallocation of, of some of these resources given to the police to be given to schools in low-income neighborhoods so that they can have a fair shot like everyone else. I remember, and this is a predominant black school district, where it worked, that some schools would not have sufficient, let's say, college advisors. There's a guidance counselor who's taking on all this preparation for college stuff, um, application stuff with like 200 students preparing to go off, and it's tough, and so sometimes some of the nuances of how to enhance the application, how to pick schools and to ensure that you have a high chance of getting to school. Like that, that kind of advice is missing because there's not enough resources to go around to really invest in this part of the education system. And even with disciplining, I mean, I taught high school in Jamaica, and what I see here in terms of the approach of discipline it's radically different in Jamaica. You deal with things in school. I mean, suspension, expulsion, that's like a very last resort. But you try to do the discipline and the correction within the school, and not in a punitive way, but in a way to help the student to to become a better person. I don't think this kind of emotional investment is there in many of our schools as in, in the United States, especially schools that consist of predominantly black students. So one, one of the things that's happening again with the defund the police conversation is school districts, a few of them have canceled contracts with local police departments because one of the things that has happened in this country is that school districts outsource discipline to the police wow. and the juvenile justice system. So you have police officers showing up, and I, I, I saw this a lot, um, actually, um, in Connecticut, and it was just crazy. Police officers are there, our school resource officers, whatever they want to call them. In the morning, they're armed. It's like walking into a militarized zone. It's how, that's an impression that's given And just from a visual to a psychological component of it, if you have to go to school in that type of environment, like what messages are being reinforced? And you just go to the white school district not far from yours, and it's a different kind of atmosphere. I mean, as teachers, we know that the psychosocial and the literal ecological setup is important. For learning to take place, it's not just what has been taught, what has been said, but the environment in which it happens that uh, produces great outcomes of students. So that we know <laughs> how do students feel when they they step off the bus and they're dropped off and they come into the school building. All that is important. If the first thing I'm going to see is a police officer with a uh, with a gun, I'm not thinking that I'm coming to school to learn. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm coming to a detention camp or something.
1: Yeah, and it- Going back to the idea of trust, it does not really communicate the idea that there's any trust in the children that they will behave themselves and conduct themselves in a manner that doesn't require police presence.